Beijing's decision to propose a new national security law for Hong Kong has reignited debates over the city's future. We figured two people who would be able to provide some insight into the future of Hong Kong are James McGregor, the chairman of APCO Worldwide, and Mark Clifford, the executive director of the Asia Business Council. In a fairly wide-ranging conversation, James and Mark touched on the legal, political, and economic aspects of the national security law and the future of Hong Kong. To start, Mark lays out what we do know and what we don't know about the law itself. Well, the NPC, in fact, has not yet passed the national security law, and so we don't really know anything about it. What we do know is that Beijing is enormously frustrated that uh, 23 years after the handover of Hong Kong from Britain to China, Hong Kong has not fulfilled its duty under the mini-constitution known as the Basic Law to pass legislation that would outlaw subversion, treason, and secession. And Beijing has just said, enough is enough. We're just going to go and pass this ourselves, and you're going to have to live with it. The NPC, the National People's Congress, delegated the authority to do this to a, a to standing committee to a smaller group. And there allegedly, or there will be some consultations, but Hong Kong people won't really have any role in those consultations. And in fact, they'll all take place in mainland China. And Mark, didn't they also, didn't the NPC also talk about um, allowing state organs to set up in Hong Kong, meaning, you know, the national security people, the Ministry of State Security, who've been there, I'm sure, in an underground way, but they, they would be able to set up official offices and basically move the whole security apparatus into, into Hong Kong legally. Well, you're absolutely right, but we don't know, Jim, exactly uh, wh what the details are going to be. And there have been lots of leaks, and I think the suggestion is Beijing is really going to be in here in a very open way. In fact, the situation is so extraordinary that the former chief just justice, the most senior jurist in in uh, Hong Kong, wrote a piece saying that this, saying that Beijing had the right to do it, which they do, um, but that the legislation should include basic concepts such as presumption of innocence rather than presumption of guilt, open trials, fair trials, trials in Hong Kong rather than across the mainland. So it's clear that there are some people who would like uh, none of those things to exist. And uh, I think it's, as you said, Jim, I think it's pretty clear that mainland agents have been at work here. There have been some very high-profile abductions of people who've ended up back in China. And uh, I think that this is a way of legalizing that. But more than that, it's a way of criminalizing what is quite common behavior by many Hong Kong people, whether it's going out and protesting and or as tonight. It's the 31st anniversary of the killings in Tiananmen Square. It's June 4th here in Hong Kong. And for the first time ever, Authorities have not allowed demonstrators to hold a, a vigil uh, at Victoria Park to commemorate those killings. They say it's because of COVID, but it's clear that there are political motives at work as well. You know, there's um, you, you see some of the back and forth among the lawyers on this. And um, like the business community uh, is, is trying to say, well, we shouldn't worry too much about this because it'll be enforced by Hong Kong courts. But, you know, the, the, if the National People's Congress is doing this law in the first place, it bypasses the normal consultative review that um, goes, you know, goes on in Hong Kong on laws. So I think there, there might be some legal challenges and, you know, where they're going to go. I don't know with the way Hong Kong courts are. are, are um, but this could, this, could, this could be stirred up for quite a while, I think. Well, absolutely. There's no precedent for how to balance mainland China's legal ideas 
uh, with those of Hong Kong. Hong Kong, under the basic law, under our mini constitution, Hong Kong enjoys the British common law tradition. China doesn't have a common law tradition. So it's, it's always going to be difficult to square a circle. Um, I mean, if Germany had taken over Hong Kong, it would have been difficult to mesh two very, very different legal systems. The fact that uh, the People's Republic of China is ruled by a Leninist party makes it immeasurably more difficult. So that's an interesting overview of the, the legal issues, but the geopolitics of this is obviously also important. Um, Secretary Pompeo had said that the U.S. won't consider Hong Kong to have a high degree of autonomy from China anymore. So what kind of ramifications is that going to have in terms of you know, export controls, tariffs and the like? Again, uh, we don't know because um, Trump was as vague as the NPC. You know, he, he just had a little snitfit out in the Rose Garden where he went after China on all kinds of levels, but there was really no no strong substance to it. On Hong Kong, they said they'd begin the process of ending the special relationship, and that's it, and that there would be sanctions on officials who are, you know, who are part of promoting it and part of carrying it out. Now, what that's going to come to, we don't know, but, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, factors that will prevent the U.S. from going too far. Number one, the U.S. has a $31 billion trade surplus with Hong Kong, the largest of anywhere in the world, because Hong Kong only expects, exports about $450 million worth of stuff uh, to the United States. The United States puts in, you know, what, $32 billion of, of goods to Hong Kong. Do they want that to to uh, end up in a, in a bit of a mess? Um, but it's still it's it's unknown and it's part of a whole wide portfolio of of actions that the administration is talking about taking against China and as we know whenever whenever the president is really faced with something that could hit financial markets um, he he backs down so we'll see how how strong this really is what do you think Mark I think that the Chinese have made the calculation that's very similar to yours, Jim, which is Trump is more bark than bite. The U.S., as you pointed out, has the largest trade surplus with Hong Kong of any economy in the world. I mean, think about that. We're a city of seven and a half million people. Now, of course, that's because Hong Kong is a great conduit for everything from oranges to high tech goods going into China. I mean, much of what's sent to Hong Kong ends up in China. Uh, the U.S. would have a lot to lose. Now, in the context of the size of the U.S. economy, it's not a huge amount, but there would be everybody from grape, grape and wine exporters to uh, financial services people who would have a lot to lose. Um, this is a nuclear option if the Trump administration follows through on it. There are also about 85,000 Americans living in Hong Kong. There are well over 1,000 U.S. companies which have their regional headquarters here. So the U.S. would be hurt quite badly. Now, uh, Hong Kong would be would be a kind of unwitting pawn in this Sino-U.S. Um, confrontation. And I think the city could be hurt very badly. I know that the financial sector, particularly banks, were really caught off guard by Pompeo's statement that uh, they would take sanctions against banks that were... Uh, doing things that the U.S. doesn't like. And uh, we've, as we've seen with North Korea and Iran, when the U.S. decides to weaponize its financial system, it's, it's, it's pretty bad if you're, if you're caught up in that. And so I think Hong Kong's role as a financial center will be okay. But I say that with a caveat that if the U.S. acts uh, really toughly, that all bets are off. 
you know, and there's a lot of there's a lot of small things involved in the relationship that add up to a lot. You know, Hong Kong has separate agreements on shipping and on airlines and all kinds of transportation, uh, on cultural and education exchanges. They have their own Fulbright program. So there's there's a lot of details where the U.S. you know might take some actions. Depends on whether they're going to hurt Hong Kong more than 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 you know the mainland. One thing I I would guess we will see is uh, strong export controls. That there'll be much stronger export controls on what gets into Hong Kong. I agree with you completely, Jim. Hong Kong has been this uh, kind of. Um, leak in the dike, I guess, to the extent that uh, the U.S. still has controls on high-tech uh, items to, to China. I mean, I think there's increasing concern about dual-use technologies that have, could have military purposes. And, you know, there are no, there are no controls effectively on what's sent to Hong Kong. Um, Hong Kong has been caught up in these sorts of things before. During the Korean War, uh, Hong Kong, again, uh, was cut off from a lot because of concern that um, goods would be going into um, into China. So it's not like Hong Kong hasn't been through this before, but this is a this is potentially an existential crisis for Hong Kong. Again, particularly if uh, there are sanctions taken against individuals and especially those in the financial system, bankers and banks that are involved uh, with doing business that the U.S. doesn't like. Because you cut off access to the dollar clearing system, you've basically made it impossible for a bank to function. Well, you know, it's also Hong Kong's a, a pretty attractive place for American companies to do business. And remember, Americans have visa free travel to go to Hong Kong. Now, uh, Hong Kong people don't have visa free travel to go to the U.S. If Americans lose visa free travel to go into Hong Kong, that could that could be quite difficult. You know, it, it's something would, that China would do as retribution. And that kind of brought me into to one of the other questions I wanted to ask about, which was the business impact of all of this. So, I mean, like you said, like a lot of companies do business in Hong Kong. A lot of them use it as, you know, a base for operations. So in terms of like human resources for companies that are, you know, looking at the situation as it develops, do you think U.S. and European companies are going to be less comfortable having, you know, staff and headquarters in Hong Kong after the change due to these rules? Or, or do you think it will be less significant? Uh, I think that uh, Hong Kong's had um, at least uh, a couple of pretty significant blows in, I'd say, three in the past year. Um, First of all, we had the most uh, serious demonstrations, something close to an insurrection against the government. And we had schools that were shut. We had a very difficult time um, even being able to travel around the city. And this in a city, it's one of the safest, easiest cities to travel around in the world. So that already made Hong Kong a lot less attractive to many expatriates. I mean, your kids can't go to school. It's not really a great place to live. Then we had uh, COVID and Hong Kong reacted pretty well, but uh, there are still um, you know, a number of restrictions in school. Not all schools are open. They've pretty much been closed for the past four months. Now that's clearly not unique to Hong Kong. But then you put the national security law on top of that and um, I don't think the law in itself is going to really shift the balance, at least not immediately, for many companies. But all in all, the environment in Hong Kong has become a lot less attractive. If you go to Beijing, you go to Shanghai, you go to Seoul, you go to Singapore, you know, you know what you're getting, for better or worse. These cities all have their own regulations, their own pollution, their own you know, various characteristics. But in Hong Kong, if you don't know from year to year what the legal system is going to be and how, if your company is going to be caught up in a way that it might be in the mainland, yes, it's potentially much less attractive. But I would say that it's almost like the icing on the cake given everything else that's happened in Hong Kong in the last year. 
you know, but you also have to look at what's happened in Hong Kong in the last 10, 15 years is a lot of the headquarters have moved out and um, of the multinationals because a lot of them moved their headquarters into Shanghai, um, headquarters for China or headquarters for Asia even, others in Singapore for Southeast Asia and India elsewhere. Because remember, Hong Kong used to be the only really uh, uh, first world developed city in Asia for many years. So headquarters were there for everybody. And that has kind of slipped out over the years. Plus, it's expensive and it wasn't so easy to get the staff you needed. So um, what is Hong Kong now? It is the financial center. It's where all the deal guys are. It's where the banks are. It's where the stock markets are. Um, it's where the lawyers are. And, you know, it's going to be pretty hard for them to leave because uh, it's the only, it's the only, it, it is the financial hub of Asia. And boy, China does not want to lose that. China knows it needs Hong Kong as a financial hub because there's, you can't do this and you can't do this in China. You don't have the free flow of capital. You don't have the rule of law um, and you don't have the free flow of information, which does bring up something, Mark, that I'm curious about. Free flow of information. I, I, I read that uh, VPNs are being downloaded like crazy in Hong Kong now because they're worried about the Great Firewall coming in. Do you think that's possible? I think uh, anything is possible at this point. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow. My hunch is that China will be on relatively good behavior after September this year when there are some legislative elections. I think they want to make uh, sure that they don't do too badly in the election. I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know if that's going to be effective or not. And I think that's one reason they're rushing this legislation through now. I think, though, on the whole... They'll try to um, assure everybody, as they have, you don't have anything to worry about, just a few troublemakers that we're going to go after, just need a few legal tools to clean things up. And they'll try to make Hong Kong look as if it's as free as ever, as far as free flow of information. It's hard for me to believe that in three to five, let alone, well, you mentioned 10 to 15 years uh, a few minutes ago, Jim, that in 10 or 15 years, it's going to be as free as it is now. I just don't see it. Um, Hong Kong's in its its ranking in press freedom indexes, its ranking in economic freedom indexes have just have well, particularly in press freedom, have plummeted. They've gone, I think, from 18th to 77th in the last uh, 18 years um, since the since the international uh, or reporters without borders have started uh, their surveys. So you know, there's already a huge slippage in terms of freedom, and I think now we're seeing the last bastion, which is um, the the legal system, which is under severe and sustained attack. You know, let me tell a quick story. Uh, back in November, I was at a conference in Beijing, and uh, Hong Kong came up, you know, about the uh, the demonstrations and the unrest. And um, a guy who's lived in Hong Kong probably 20 years, originally from the mainland, uh, U.S. educated, worked at a lot of major investment banks, now works for runs uh, funds for a, a Chinese bank. Um, he was asked about Hong Kong and he said, look, a lot of people got to leave. They can't accept our system. Um, you know, they'll leave and that, that's fine. And we'll have no problem because we'll replace them with a very high capability Chinese people in the United States who are being made to feel uncomfortable and want to live in an international city. Uh, that was quite interesting, to, you know, because you, you can't forget what's going on here in the United States. And, uh, 
you know, well, right now the place is blown up. Uh, I'm in Minnesota. The place is blown up, as you know. But, um, it's, you know, there's a lot of uh, anti-Chinese racism going on, too. And, and also the don't trust uh, Chinese in universities and in, um, in uh, labs. Um, you know, that his prediction may be true. I, I've thought that for some time. I hadn't thought about bringing the overseas Chinese back home. But the sinification of Hong Kong, the mainlandization of Hong Kong, I think is part of a pretty clear strategy. We've seen this in Tibet. We've seen this in um, Xinjiang. And, of course, we're seeing it in Hong Kong. Hong Kong's a pretty attractive place if you're a mainlander. And we have some of the best and the brightest who've moved here, like probably like the guy that you're referring to. I mean, I know a lot of these people. They're great. And by the way, we're a city of seven and a half million people. We're barely a, a medium-sized city in China. They're 1.3 billion people. Can't get a couple million of them to move down to Hong Kong? No problem. And if Hong Kongers want to line up, first it's the VPNs. The banks are filled right now with people trying to open foreign currency accounts. You can't even open a normal bank account for another month for a month right now. Immigration, the phones for immigration lawyers are just ringing off the hook. That's fine with the Chinese, I think. It's like let everybody leave. Got plenty of people to fill it up. Again, staying with the business impact, but what do you think companies should be doing in terms of preparation right now for you know coming changes? You guys were talking about how you were expecting Hong Kong to be you know a less free place in ten to fifteen years. You know what should companies be doing? Let me add to your question because I'm a I can't help myself. Um, you know, Mark is head of the Asia Business Council, so his members are you know. Companies from all over Asia, big companies. Um, so I'd also like to hear his view of how they're looking at this too, not just American companies. Yeah, absolutely. You go first, though, Jim. You're you're the APCO guy, so um, you tell me how companies should be preparing. <laughs> how should they prepare? Um, well, keep your eyes open and and really look at what's going to happen in substance. Uh, don't get too misled by the headlines, right? I think most companies right now have a wait and see attitude. Um, but also, you know, they're in a difficult position because th th there's a point where they're going to be asked, which side are you on? You know, we've already seen that with HSBC and, and the, uh, the Hong Kong companies that we're getting, um, getting pilloried for um, not signing up and, and pledging allegiance, basically, to this, uh, this new national security law. Well, uh, what's going to happen with the foreign companies? You know, we've already seen with the demonstrations where um, Chinese officials have gone to foreign companies in Hong Kong and said, you have demonstrators uh, in your in your company um, that that's not going to be tolerated. Um, you know, if you don't crack down, we're going to crack down on you all very quietly. So um, I think already people are getting very nervous about about. Hong Kong and and how they how they how they deal with China because they now have a, a bigger grip on them and because there's a divide who, which side are you on and that 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 if you want to see foreign companies leave start pushing that I I concur Jim it started not so quietly last summer when Swire which is the British company that controls the airline here Cathay Pacific was forced to sack its CEO. Uh, as a result of um, employees who were taking part in demonstrations. I mean, basically, the Chinese authorities told Cathay, either you buckle or we destroy you. And with airlines, that's very easy because you, you cut the routes to the most lucrative and, and largest important part, if not the most lucrative, uh, 
of the airline, they're, they're finished, right? And you alluded to HSBC. They've tried to uh, walk a tightrope act, but they had to cave. And their uh, senior head in China, Peter Wong, was just very publicly shown signing a petition in support of this national security legislation. So when push comes to shove, the Chinese will take politics over economics. Deng Xiaoping told Margaret Thatcher that when she visited Beijing in September 1982, and he said that China was taking Hong Kong back in 1997. Thatcher said, we don't think you can run it that well. Just let us, you can have sovereignty, but let us keep administering. He said, no, I think we can run it just fine. And if we can't, so be it. And the Chinese have never hidden the fact that politics always triumphs over economics. Now, it's a very un-Marxian kind of argument, but that's that's what they think. That's how they act. And uh, I think for the foreign companies that try to buck them, there'll be no place for them in Hong Kong. Now, most companies are able to live in the systems where they uh, are doing business. They make peace with it somehow. And I think, as you say, Jim, companies are going to have to keep their eyes open because the landscape is, is changing. For members of the Asia Business Council, I think Hong Kong is just one part in a very big, very serious geostrategic rivalry between the U.S. and China. And it's Hong Kong is, is what's in the news this week. But the, the bigger issue is just the split between the, the world's two biggest economies. And many companies are going to be forced to choose. What do you do? What does TSMC, the world's largest chip maker, do when Huawei... The Chinese telecoms company is responsible for 20% of its business, but it needs equipment and it needs the customers from the U.S. for a lot of the rest of its business. Well, it needs the U.S.-made equipment just to make its chips. Companies are in very, very difficult position. And this this is, it's a different kind of Cold War than the one between the Soviet Union and the U.S., but it is very serious. And, in, and that is what is keeping chief executives up at night. I mean, Hong Kong is just, you know, a pawn on a very complicated kind of three-dimensional geostrategic chessboard. You know, um, one thing we also should pay attention to is Hong Kong, I think, does have a tenuous hold on some foreign companies because there's a lot of people in Hong Kong because it has this tax rate of between 6 and 17%. It's got no, you know, no, no tax on interest, dividends, or capital gains. That's why a lot of people are there, uh, in, because it's got the best tax rates in, well, probably the world, I guess. And so if, if, if there's a lot of other pressures, companies may suck it up and just move somewhere else where they got to pay more, you know, pay more taxes, but, um, you know, things may work a little better. Getting back to your point about the financial markets, it is difficult to dislodge people and markets when they're established. And Hong Kong has a role to play. It's just hard to see what its new role is going to be and how it can carve out a more important role. And it's, it'll be interesting to see if it's just sort of like a, an aging dowager, which is just sort of like clinging on to some glorious past, or if there's a new role as a kind of... Uh, financial and, you know, the freest city in China, even if that's not really that free, because it's the, the kind of head of the, the Pearl River Delta, which is a, uh, you know, area of about 70 million people. It's one of the, it's probably the largest ur- urban agglomeration in the world of any economic importance. And I mean, there is a role for Hong Kong. I just don't know if it's going to be as an important international uh, financial center that's uh, important for all of Asia. It may 
just be important for southern China. The China Business Review podcast is a production of the U.S. China Business Council, and you can learn more about the work that we do on our website, uschina.org. The show is also a podcast companion to our digital magazine of the same name, and you can read more articles about the economic and business aspects of the U.S.-China relationship at chinabusinessreview.com. If you like the show, please do leave us a rating and a review. It's the biggest thing you can do to help us spread the word. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon.